Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. Great to have you, company. It's Tuesday. Yes, it is. It's the 24th day of May, and it's bloody raining again. You know, we have had so much rain, we've exceeded the yearly average in Sydney already, and we're not even halfway there. (laughs) We're not even into June yet. Anyway, umbrellas at the ready in a lot of parts, and I know that uh, a lot of the areas west of the Great Divide are also going to get drenching over the next day or so, and normally we'd say, well, this is wonderful, but they're already rain-sogged. Okay, I hope you're dealing with the wet weather, or if you're listening to us elsewhere around Australia and you've got a nice day, half your luck, hey? Our phone number, if you would like to give us a call, 0406521250. The Marcus Paul in the Morning hotline is open. A little later in the show, we'll play back a a caller by the name of Ben. Uh, Ben is one of my long-time followers, listeners, and long-term pain in my ass. Anyway, he's a a bit of a a right-wing conspiracy theorist, Trump-loving whatever you want to call him. Anyway, he rang up, uh, I think he had a few ales over the weekend during the election. I think he had a few too many and he was a little emotional. (laughs) And then he decided to um, call, I don't know whether he was pranking, no, well, he sounded serious. Anyway, we'll play some of what Ben had to say back. It's already going viral on the Facebook page. Oh, Benny, if you are listening, mate, if nothing, you're good entertainment. Absolutely you are. All right, um, now we'll go through more of what's going on um, in the uh, uh, aftermath of Saturday's result. Labor now lead the country. The Prime Minister is overseas. We've got an acting Prime Minister in Richard Miles at the moment as Anthony Albanese uh, was sworn in yesterday at Government House along with his new um, ministry, well, at least a few of them, including Penny Wong. I think she'll make a great foreign affairs minister, and I think we'll see that in the next day or so. Um, So Albo, excuse me, and Penny Wong are overseas at the Quad meeting. They will, on the sideline of this meeting, sit down as well with the United States President, Joe Biden, um, the Indian President as well, and others. And I think it'll be a good diplomatic overseas trip. I look forward to hearing uh, all about it from the Prime Minister when he returns and when he does there's much work to do including the caucus which will also meet late tomorrow and there'll be others who'll be eventually sworn in as a part of Anthony Albanese's cabinet and his new ministry. What about the other mob? Well they're in all sorts at the moment. Peter Dutton is looking the likely successor of course to Scott Morrison I mean there's nobody else nobody else Anyway, um, that is probably going to be the case in the next couple of days. Uh, I mean, uh, when I say there's nobody else, I think (laughs) there probably could be, um, but Dutton will be the man. What about for the Nationals? Should Barnaby Joyce just up and leave? Well, some suggest no, even though, I mean, you know my thoughts on Barnaby, but, you know, uh, the Nationals fared 
half decently in comparison to the Liberals during the election over the weekend. They didn't lose any seats, not to Teal's. So maybe Barnaby should stay on as the deputy prime... Oh, I nearly said it, didn't I? As the leader of the National Party. Anyway, we'll go through that. Uh, Some other stories as well away from politics. I want to talk about the rental crisis engulfing Australia. Some of the rental increases and the amount of money people are paying for rents in some of our larger cities. I mean, they, they... It's really scary. We've got a supply problem. Absolutely. Uh, In some places, including the Gold Coast, you know, rental vacancies sit at 0.1 or 0.8%, so less than 1%. I mean, good luck to anybody trying to rent at the moment. I'll go through that story and the latest as well on uh, a couple of court stories, including Andrew O'Keefe. There's a bit of criticism about him being bailed to some fancy schmancy uh, joints, a rehabilitation centre up there in Port Stephens. Some say, well, that's not where he belongs, considering there are serious charges against him. Anyway, I'll get to that in a whole stack more. The latest news, thanks to Air News, we'll always bring that to you every breakfast show and some great tunes as well. So let's get into it. Tuesday morning, this is Marcus Paul in the morning right around Australia. All right, let's get into it on this Tuesday morning. Our hotline is there for you anytime, 0406 521250. And as always, we do appreciate your comments on the Facebook page. Big news out of yesterday, of course, as Anthony Albanese was sworn in as Australia's 31st Prime Minister and jetted off to Japan. For the quad meeting, Josh Frydenberg, former Australian Treasurer, conceded the seats of Kuyong. It all happened yesterday as Albo, our new Prime Minister, vowed to do politics better. Now, in a statement, former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg conceded the seat of Kuyong to independent Dr Monique Ryan. He said it was an incredible privilege to have served as the local member for the last 12 years as he rang the doctor to congratulate her and wish her well for the term ahead. Now, Mr Frydenberg thanked the wonderful local people that he'd met as Kuyong MP and said we had achieved so much together. It's their contribution that makes our community great, a community whose diversity, tolerance and values reflect the very best of Australia. I want to thank everyone who I had the pleasure to work with locally. It's been quite a journey said the outgoing treasurer. To the people of Kuyong, I can only say thank you. I look forward to spending more time with my family. And uh, Dr Ryan then made a statement later that day. Well, plenty of you having your say on the Facebook page after Josh Frydenberg conceded yesterday. Most of your comments not nice and look a lot of you. I I did say maybe I preempted some of uh, uh, the... uh, negative comments on Josh Frydenberg yesterday. Look, I I have always resisted any overly personal snipes since the weekend, but I had a, uh, you know, a beef with Josh Frydenberg over a number of issues, in particular the smugness in relation to the whole scenario of those big businesses that did well during the COVID-19 pandemic at the expense of taxpayers refusing to pay back JobKeeper payments. So I said the, the man who wouldn't recoup overpaid JobKeeper payments finally got his just desserts. Well, Doug says, Marcus, 
he was an abject failure as treasurer. There we go. Uh, now, others say faith in the greater Australian voting electorate has been restored. Jeremy says you'd think the treasurer would have been better at numbers to see it sooner. And Jeremy, well, he's not at all happy. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's happy, I guess, that uh, the treasurer is gone. Who is going to line Jerry Harvey's pockets now, says Jeremy. All right. Um, anyway, Clayton's not happy with me. You should know how it feels to lose your job, Prawny. Mind your manners. Um, oh, OK. Fair enough, Clayton. But you got to remember, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't uh, get money off Australian taxpayers to prop up my business, mates, pal. Anyway. It's just the way uh, politics works, and uh, he'll be fine, Josh Reidenberg, for the remainder of his days being a former Treasurer of Australia, and I'm sure a nice, cushy job awaits him in the private sector in the not-too-distant future. That's the way it all pans out. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back on this Tuesday morning, the 24th day of May. 0406521250 is our hotline number. Many of you commenting, of course, on the Facebook page. Well, Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, vowed to do politics better in his first press conference as Australia's new PM, ahead of his first international trip to Tokyo for the Quad Leaders meeting. He said yesterday in his opening statement, I am incredibly honoured and humbled to have been sworn in as Australia's 31st Prime Minister. Australians have voted for change and my government intends to implement that change in an orderly way. The Prime Minister said he had spoken to US President Joe Biden ahead of the Quad Summit. He said he received a phone call and had a very fruitful and positive conversation, renewing his acquaintance with President Biden. The relationship, Albo said, with the United States is our most important. He said he will use the summit to, quote, send a message to the world that there's a new government in Australia. He went on to say, it's a government that represents a change in terms of the way that we deal with the world on issues like climate change, but also a continuity in the way that we have respectful democracy and the way that we value our friendships and long-term alliances, he said. Albo also said one of the messages Australian voters sent at Saturday's federal election was that they were sick of the divisive politics and wanted to be better represented. Uh, people do have conflict fatigue, is what the Prime Minister said. They want to work with people, and I want to work with people, whether it's the crossbenchers or the opposition, to try to, wherever possible, get agreements. Now, Mr Albanese said he would return from Japan tomorrow, that's Wednesday, and set about implementing Labor's agenda. He said our agenda that's received the endorsement of the Australian people, our National Reconstruction Fund, our Powering Australia plan to deal with the opportunities that come with acting on climate change, our full implementation of the respected work report recommendations, affordable childcare, fixing aged care crisis, strengthening Medicare. Mr Albanese said he wanted to bring people together and change the way that politics is conducted here in Australia. 
He also importantly said that we will establish a national anti-corruption commission and he said he's asked for that work to begin already. He also said that he will bring together an employment summit and he thanked those people in the business community and in the trade union movement for the discussions that they've already had about the way that that can be progressed. Now, the Prime Minister said he will be advancing the need to have constitutional recognition of First Nations people, including a voice to Parliament enshrined in that constitution. He said he looks forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. A government that doesn't seek to divide, that doesn't seek to have wedges, but seeks to bring people together for our common interest and our common purpose. Obviously, having a Uh, probably, hopefully, anyway, a final crack at former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Well, as counting of the votes continue, Albo said he was confident he would be able to form a majority Labor government, but had secured support from the crossbench that they would not back any motions of no confidence against him, so there's no problem there with supply. He said he had received and had had discussions with existing members of the crossbench and received confirmation from Rebecca Sharkey, Bob Catter, Andrew Wilkie, Helen Haynes and Zali Stegall that they would not support any no-confidence motions against the government and that they would also secure supply. They will consider legislation on its merits. I expect that to be the case. I will treat them with respect, said Albo. Now, Mr Albanese said it was important to respect the outcome of the election, though he believed the final numbers would be in Labor's favour. He said he was hopeful that he would receive a majority of members in the House of Representatives. At this stage, that looks highly likely. All right, well, Labor has won, so what now? Some of the key policies that Albo has pledged to deliver. I'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Tuesday morning, the 24th day of May. When will Parliament resume? Well, according to the new Prime Minister, sometime before the end of July. But Anthony Albanese said yesterday he was still working with departments to finalise a date. He said there were some big international events that needed to be accommodated. And he also wanted to ensure there wasn't a crossover with things like the school holidays. Uh, In other words, he said that he wanted to run a family-friendly parliament. He said, we will resume parliament in a very orderly way. Now, shortly before he left aboard a plane to Tokyo with his freshly sworn-in Foreign Minister Penny Wong, Mr Albanese said he would put Australian national interests first and not attempt to play politics with security issues. He said on issues of international affairs, what I will do as the Prime Minister and my Foreign Minister Senator Wong will do is put Australia's national interests first, put Australia's values first. Now, he also said that his position on the Chinese government was the same as it had been before the election. He said he acknowledged the relationship with China will remain a difficult one. I said that before the election and that has not changed. It is China that has changed, not Australia. And Australia should always stand up for our values and we will in a government that I lead. Now, Mr Albanese also made an historic change to the backdrop of the Australian Prime Minister. Uh, You'll know that when Scott Morrison held the office. There were three Australian flags behind him whenever he spoke, particularly, you know, in Parliament House. 
But prior to Albo's press conference, staff replaced two of those three Aussie flags behind the podium to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags. I'll have a little bit more to say about this soon, but uh, there were a couple of stories on this yesterday. And I have to say, I was quite disgusted with some of the comments on some of the mainstream media stories, on, particularly online, on social media. Um, uh, are we really still that racist? And I, I just can't understand for the life of me. I mean, those on the right apparently call those progressives like me and others on the left snowflakes. I can't ever recall being upset about, you know, a flag being placed somewhere. Anyway, uh, back to the Prime Minister. He said the caucus will meet next Tuesday and have a swearing-in of the full ministry next Wednesday morning. All right, so that's in a week's time. Uh, So yesterday, the Labor leader, new Prime Minister, arrived at Government House just before 9 o'clock where he met with the Governor-General, David Hurley, before jetting off to his first international trip to the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue Summit in Tokyo, which (laughs) we'll just refer to as the acronym QUAD, the QUAD meeting. Now, of course, he was accompanied by newly minted foreign minister, someone I think who'll do a fantastic job in that role, Penny Wong. He took the oath for the affirmation of office uh, of the Prime Minister of Australia, Deputy Labor Leader Richard Miles was also there. He was sworn in as the new Defence Minister and he will become Acting Prime Minister while Albo is away in Japan. There we go. Richard Miles is currently Acting Prime Minister this morning. Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher were sworn in as Treasurer and Finance Minister respectively. Now, Mr. Albanese will meet with world leaders, including US President Joe Biden and India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi while he's there in Japan. Albo said on Sunday, the Quad meeting was an absolute priority for Australia. He said it enables us to send a message to the world that there is a change of government. There will be some changes in policy, particularly with regard to climate change and our engagement with the world on those issues. He said he would then get down to business when he arrived back in Australia tomorrow. He's set to meet state and territory leaders in Canberra this week as well. There we go. Well, uh, just on the policies, so what can we expect? I'll get into what's happening with the Liberals very soon um, after our next break. But Labor have won, so now what? Some of the key policies that Anthony Albanese has pledged to deliver. There was a report yesterday from News Corp that outlined those, and I thought I'd mention them this morning. Well, childcare, firstly. Labor will push forward its plans for cheaper childcare with the subsidy rate to be increased to a maximum of 90%, with households under $530,000 getting a cheaper rate. The plan will come into effect on the 1st of July next year. The all-important Independent Commission Against Corruption. Labor, backed by the Teal Independents, will legislate for a federal independent commission against corruption by the end of this year, with Prime Minister Albanese having previously vowed the political watchdog will have teeth. 
pay rises. Labor will write to the Fair Work Commission backing a 5.1% increase to the minimum wage ahead of a June 7 deadline. The party will also back a pay rise for aged care workers and has previously committed to fully funding the increases, meaning workers in the sector could get a pay bump by the end of this year. For first-time buyers, well... Low and middle income first home buyers will be able to buy homes with 2% deposits with Labor covering up to 40% of the cost of the home under a shared ownership scheme. Labor, of course, will also use a $10 billion fund to build 30,000 social and affordable homes. Health. Prescription medication will be slashed by $12.50 per script with Labor also set to invest $2.5 billion dollars into putting 24-7 nurses in aged care while also improving food quality in these facilities. Insofar as Indigenous Affairs is concerned, Labor has backed a referendum on establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which would legally enshrine the requirement in the Constitution. And finally, in education, Labor, an Albanese government, under Labor will add an extra 45,000 fee-free TAFE places and an extra 20,000 university places concentrated on sectors with skills shortages. So, as Albo said, there's a hell of a lot of work to do. And he needs to get cracking on it ASAP. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, let's get back into it, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Well, outgoing Defence Minister Peter Dutton is in the box seat to take over the traumatised Liberal Party, which is reeling from its rout over the weekend. I mean, who else is there, really? Andrew Hastie? Yeah. Um, The bloke (laughs) who still has a bit of a cloud hanging over his, uh, his head, I'm talking about Angus Taylor, yes. Uh, Certainly people in Sydney won't forget too quickly how, you know, he had a crack at the Lord Mayor Clover Moore and all that issue with a a so-called dodgy letter. Anyway, I think it will be Peter Dutton. He seems almost certain to be elected opposition leader when the party meets in coming days. Victorian MP Alan Tudge yesterday told Sky News... Peter Dutton will be leader. He'll be an incredibly effective leader, actually. He will be very effective in holding the Labor Party to account. I think we need to go back to those values. He will be a very uh, effective leader in holding the Labor Party to account, said Alan Tudge who finally crawled out of the woodwork after the election. Anyway, while former Energy Minister Angus Taylor and former Trade Minister Dan Tian's names have also been floated, it is thought Mr Dutton, a proven political warrior and leading Conservative, would have a straight run to replace former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. The role of the deputy, though, is a little less clear, with names including Mr Taylor, Mr Tian and possible female contenders Jane Hume... Oh, really? Michaelia Cash and Anne Rustin, who are all, of course, senators, I guess we'll have to see. The only likely lower housewoman in the mix would be outgoing Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews. But the party would not accept two Queenslanders in the top two leadership positions, so I I think we can probably uh, draw a line under Karen Andrews' name. Andrew Hastie, the outgoing Assistant Defence Minister, is touted as a potential future Prime Minister. Really? Who wrote this? 
Ah, news call. Uh, but it's not clear if he would be considered for the role of deputy. He suffered the smallest swing against him of any West Australian Liberals. The new Labor government is presuming Mr Dutton will be leader and is already bracing for incoming fire from the former police officer who revels in political warfare and is quick on his feet in Parliament. Although I can't wait till somebody stands, whoever it is, the, uh, the manager of business, to ask Mr Dutton to resume his seat and move that the member no longer be heard. Won't that be good? Anyway, the National Party leadership is also up for grabs as it is declared vacant automatically after every election. Really? I didn't know that. You learn something new every day. Former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, of course from Armidale in New South Wales, would likely make a claim to continue as leader, given the Nationals held every seat they contested. Well, they did. I mean, uh, yep. Got to be fair with the facts, they did. The Nationals, I mean, they did so much better than their so-called bigger cousins, the Liberals. But as we know, he is a polarising figure. And some believe the time has come to transition to David Littleproud, uh, the more moderate deputy leader from Queensland. It is not known how a ballot would play out in the Nationals' party room, given the antipathy some MPs, including Gippsland's Darren Chester, who bucked the anti-government trend to increase his margin, hold towards Mr Joyce. I guess we'll probably just wait to see. What do you think, though? I'll put a post up on the Facebook page and I look forward to reading your comments. Look, as well as deciding the leadership and senior shadow cabinet positions, the Liberals are also grappling with the upending of their factional power bases, with five inner city MPs dislodged, most notably, of course, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, along with Dave Sharma, Trent Zimmerman, Jason Falinski and Tim Wilson, the moderate wing of the party has been gutted. The most senior moderate is former Communications Minister Paul Fletcher. Actually, I quite like Paul Fletcher. Um, one colleague, though, referred to him as a charisma black hole. Oh, look, he might be a little on the dull side, but I think he's done a pretty good job in overseeing what's been happening out at Sydney's second airport at Badgeries Creek. Anyway, they say that he lacks the dyna- dynamism required to lead the party. Well, who they are, who knows? But anyway, Liberal diehards believe the key to recovery is to keep the focus firmly on the economy, noting difficult economic headwinds will make life uncomfortable for the incoming Albanese government, which has precious little experience on the Treasury benches. One MP said the party must focus on economic and cost of living concerns, but feared the party could be sidetracked by factional wars in New South Wales and climate wars with the Nationals. Another said the party needed to unravel the mixed messages sent by the electorate. Um, In the suburbs, they sent us a message about climate change and integrity. In the regions, it was the anti-vaccine mandates, and in the city, it was women. The two parties will call for leadership nominations once the Australian Electoral Commission finalises its counting class seats and winners are formally declared within the coming days. Well, again, as I said, I'll put a a post up regarding Peter Dutton and also Barnaby Joyce in particular. Should, look, I think it's a a dead certainty that Dutton will be the opposition leader. But what about old beetroot? Should he simply step down and move along? What do you make of it? Let me know. If you want to send us a call message, you can do so. (laughs) 
drop us a message 0406521250 or of course leave your comment on the Facebook page. Okay, time to move away from politics now and some news on fallen game show host Andrew O'Keefe. He was finally granted bail. He swapped his cramped two-by-three-metre remand cell for a self-contained cabin at a waterfront rural ideal after being granted bail to fight his drug and alcohol demons. O'Keefe nodded in the Supreme Court yesterday as Justice Robert Hume said the 24-7 rehabilitation centre was a good opportunity for him and after a descent into an erratic and chaotic lifestyle, he needed the help. Look, the former host of Deal or No Deal and The Chase has been on remand, as you know, at Silverwater Jail since he allegedly grabbed a former sex worker by the throat in January. Yesterday, he appeared again before the New South Wales Supreme Court via audio-video link from the remand centre. He nodded and thanked Justice Robert Hume, who granted him bail on strict conditions. Now, of course, back in March, she was refused bail after another judge, Justice Robertson Wright, ruled that his proposed three-week stint in rehab was inadequate. This time, lawyers for the former primetime television celebrity increased that to at least six months and up to 12 months. Look, there's little doubt that he does need some time away in rehab. Justice Hume said this was significant and he ordered that O'Keefe who is 50, be accompanied from Silverwater yesterday to go directly to the christian orientated rehabilitation centre at Swan Bay, which is on the coast near Port Stephens. Now, O'Keefe will have to spend between 6 and 12 months at the Connect Global Centre, where he can do things like go fishing, play tennis and basketball, as he joins up to another 19 willing men who are ready to enter the recovery stage of dealing with their addiction. The court has been told that the nephew of rock and roll legend Johnny O'Keefe and the son of a former Supreme Court judge had already been to rehab nine times before this one over his addictions to drugs including ice and cocaine. In jail, He's been in isolation and he has experienced hardships of greater significance than those experienced by the average inmate, the court was told. Oh, poor fluff. Anyway, Justice Hume agreed the former violence against women ambassador needed treatment for his long-standing drug problems and mental health issues that appear to be, to a significant extent, extent trauma-related. It offers the applicants an opportunity to address issues that have led to a significant descent into an erratic and chaotic lifestyle, the justice said. He said the prosecution case cannot be described as weak, but that a jail sentence was not inevitable if convicted due to the lack of a violent record. All right, well, what's Global Connect all about? It's a charity which states on its website that it is situated in tranquil bushland on the waterways of Port Stephens. It provides respite, peace and rejuvenation within a supported environment to men whose lives have been devastated by drugs and alcohol abuse. If he leaves rehab or is expelled, he must then hand himself into police. All right, well, we know, unfortunately, Andrew O'Keefe 
has a history of using ice and cannabis. He was on six charges after police alleged he grabbed a former sex worker by the throat then punched her and pushed her to the ground. He's pleaded not guilty to all charges, including intentionally choking a person without consent, three counts of common assault and one count of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. He's pleaded guilty to one charge, though, of course, a, a drug charge. That is, possessing a prohibited drug. He's yet to be sentenced for that. All right, well, look, I wish him all the best. I mean, he's a, an Order of Australia recipient. He's done some good work previously in the charity space, and that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, ironically, of course, he was a former ambassador for the anti-domestic violence organisation White Ribbon. Look, there's little doubt that Andrew O'Keefe does need some psychiatric and professional help. I hope he gets that, and I hope he gets his life back together. I reckon this next story might upset a few New South Wales taxpayers. We're about to be slugged a six-figure sum for the state government to find out how motorists feel about speed cameras. Really? $156,000 I see here is to be spent on surveys questioning public's feeling towards speed cameras. What? Motorists will be asked whether they like speed cameras as a part of a series of surveys that will cost in excess of 150 grand. What the f***? State government has tasked a marketing research agency with surveying motorists' satisfaction with enforcement cameras, quote-unquote, to inform future policies. It comes after a government-led parliamentary inquiry savaged the decision to remove warning signs from mobile speed cameras. Parliament's Road Safety Committee last week blasted the partial backflip to install warning signs on top of mobile speed cameras, saying it does not meet community expectations about making speed cameras more overt. Visible signage should be used to warn drivers of the camera's presence and notify them of the posted speed limit, according to the committee. Now, it also questioned whether the new signs would lead to erratic braking behaviour when motorists do see them. That could lead to a risk that public cynicism toward the mobile speed camera program, fuelled by the November 2020 changes, will continue. Look, <clears throat> excuse me, despite widespread anger about these secret mobile speed cameras, taxpayers will fork out $156,200 for six surveys over three years to learn motorists' quote, level of satisfaction, unquote, with the enforcement signs. Each survey will apparently cover a representative sample of a thousand people and will probe attitudes toward all road enforcement signs, including red light cameras, average speed cameras and mobile phone detection cameras. Labor's road spokesman John Graham called the surveys a quote, monumental waste. He said, this is money robbed from road safety and put into polling. Mr Graham said, we want money spent on black spots, not focus groups. But Nationals Upper House MP, Wes Fang, who's been a vocal critic of the decision to remove warning signs from mobile speed cameras, he says the funds could be well spent if it convinces the government to change its policy. He said, yes, it's a lot of money, but it's an opportunity to further reinforce to the government that motorists are unhappy. Really, Mr Fang, do we need to spend 
$150,000 to find out what we already know? Metropolitan Roads Minister Natalie Ward said Transport New South Wales had commissioned regular surveys since 2010 to measure community support and satisfaction with the delivery of automated camera enforcement. She said the surveys look at fixed and red light speed cameras, mobile speed cameras, average speed cameras and mobile phone detection cameras and cover several areas including awareness, support, effectiveness, accuracy and signage. Look, the amount of money raised from speeding fines has grown every year since Revenue New South Wales began collating the information in 2015 with a $207 million already in fines handed out this financial year. The amount of fines in 2021 was $201 million compared to $50 million back to back in 2015-2016. There's little doubt that these uh, you know mobile f- uh, speed cameras are a revenue gold mine for the state government. But do you agree we should be spending uh, and outsourcing survey companies at the cost of 150 grand? to tell the government what they already should know that people should, you know, basically have said and told many MPs in New South Wales that, look, if you're going to have these speed cameras, have them signed. I, th- I just think it's a waste of money. What's your opinion? Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Now, like you... I've often, well, I imagine people often wonder what the hell happens with all of these um, core flutes. Not the generic ones, uh, you know, the the blue for Liberals and green for Greens and red for Labor, but all of the um, candidate core flutes. And I'd hate to think of all the money spent on them uh, leading up to uh, the election campaign. But campaign core flutes... Um, according to, you know, some at the beginning of a campaign anyway, core flutes are a sign of political hope, but what happens to them at the end? You can't have an election in Australia without tiny pencils, sausages, and, of course, core flute. Core flute is a brand name, so perhaps we should call it twin wall polypropylene <laughs> or corrugated plastic, perhaps. Anyway, but like Hoover and Rollerblade, the brand name has become the generic. So the ABC have no problem calling them core flutes. Anyway, for some people, the major issue in any election is core flute. It's not just the core flute, too. It's all the paper. Well, I suppose the paper can be recycled. The questions and issues are perennial and are raised during local and state federal polls. Core flutes, um, well, apparently, according to many achieve political consensus. The substance is used by virtually all candidates on a sign 600 millimetres by 900 millimetres. They will print their headshot, their party name, their seat and a slogan. During the campaign, these mini billboards will spread throughout our streets and suburbs like fake spider webs at Halloween. Isn't that the case? When the campaign starts, the core flute of phobic begin raising questions of timing and location. Are they allowed to be up now? How dare this person seek public office while flagrantly breaking the law? To wits, they have placed their headshot on a power pole. This is vile as a visual, and it's visual pollution, say some. And why should we then trust these vandals with anything else? By the campaign's end, 
the core core flute uh, phobes have been joined by thousands more. The streets are full of these beaming signs of hope. But what happens to them after the last box is ticked off and the last squirt of sauce hits the democracy sausages? Is it more landfill and litter? Well, I guess the big question is, can you recycle a core flute? Well, apparently you can. Listeners uh, to ABC Radio in Sydney um, rang through with a thousand and one uses for expired election signage. One had a Malcolm Turnbull sign as a doormat <laughs> just after he became PM. They saw it as both, both useful and a metaphor. The signs make great windscreen and car protectors during hailstorms. There you go. And if that hailstorm breaks your roof tiles, there are some SES branches who keep a supply of old signs handy to plug the holes. Really? They can be cut into a thousand-piece jigsaws. Just the gift for the political tragics in your life. Some use them as construction board for other puzzles. Many souvenir them and use them in their own campaigns and demonstrations. They cover the candidate with paint and inscribe their own message on the blank side. They are repurposed in the family home in dozens of ways. If you have an open fire, place one near the fire and put firewood on them. Careful though, they may be flammable. Um, well, you can also use them as a floor for chicken coops, a rabbit hutch and guinea pig cages. Yeah, they could be lined with the headshot of a one-time political aspirant. Whether you place it face up or face down will depend on your political leanings, of course. You can also line your garbage, kitchen cupboards, cupboards and tool drawers with them. For those in cooler climates, perhaps Eden Monero, which includes the Snowy Mountains, they do make excellent toboggans, apparently. The whole family can use them. Children's cubby houses, lemonade stands and musical instruments. One teacher said she cut them into pieces and then made hand flutes out of them. She also bends them in half and uses them to display her students' artwork. You can cut out a giant potato for a photo potato photo frame for pics on your social media. Anyway, on it goes. Some, uh, let's have a look at a concreter uses um, the core flutes for form work on small concrete pores. Ceramicists love them. A traveller waterproofs their camper trailer with them as well. <laughs> uh, some long-term candidates, of course, will reuse them each time and find a poignancy in the contrast between the youthful appealing image stuck on the fence and the weary, exhausted visage of actual candidate at the booth. Yeah, it is a kind of reverse Dorian Gray. Anyway, several people also suggested that they are good for mounting dartboards or as a dartboard itself and wondered if they could be donated to archery clubs and shooting ranges for targets. <laughs> One former politician, politician, John Robertson, said he had donated his core flutes to the local archery club and they promised not to paint the targets over his head. Well, there we go. Have you got an old core flute? Or, or when I say old, have you got a core flute from the weekend's election? And what are you using it for? I'd be keen to know. Let me know. 0406521250. Or, of course, you can send us a, a message on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. 
Tuesday morning. Nice to have you company. The 24th of May. Marcus Paul in the morning. If you want to give us a call and uh, leave a message or perhaps send us an SMS, 04065-21250. That's the hotline to the program. And of course, as always, you may care to leave your comments on the Facebook page. An upset mother has spoken out about a New South Wales high school official adopting so-called gender ideology in a note home to parents by using the phrase, quote, female identifying, unquote, to describe girl students. Last week, a careers advisor at McLean High School on the north coast of New South Wales contacted parents as part of National Careers Week and offered offered spots in a STEM course. The advisor wrote, we have 15 places for any student at MHS who identifies as female to attend the Girls in Tech Live virtual event happening in our library. The Girls in Tech event is focused on educating female identifying high school students about the diverse career opportunities available available to them in the STEM. I don't even understand that. Anyway, the mum of one girl has condemned the use of such language for confusing students about gender. I'm disappointed that our education system is quietly introducing and changing language that supports dangerous fluid gender theory and ideology that causes more long-term mental harm to our youth, said the mother. We have this new generation worrying about what their sexual and gender identity is at a very young age and they are not being given a balanced view on this topic by the education department. I have never seen or heard of so many confused children as I have in the last three years since my child moved back to government-provided teaching. Teachers introducing themselves by pronouns has started to become more normalised as well, apparently. Really? Anyway, she raised the issue with why we go... One Nation MLC Mark Latham, he probably leaked this story to the Telegraph. Anyway, he plans to ask the Education Minister Sarah Mitchell how allowing boys who identify as girls participating in the event would boost female representation in STEM careers. The only purpose of using words any student who identifies as female is to tell the students the gender is not biologically determined but socially constructed and fluid. Mr Latham said, the careers advisor should stick to the science of gender and sex and leave her work leftist politics at home or run for election herself. Anyway, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has said a woman is an adult female. So why aren't our schools teaching and saying that to these children? He, uh, This is Latham said it appeared This use of language was also occurring at other schools, citing a principal at Bowerville last year, sending a message to parents saying he wanted to make the school gender neutral and to abolish words like he and she and man and woman. In response, a New South Wales education spokeswoman said there was no departmental policy to use this type of language. But the school apparently hadn't received any complaints. All right. I mean, what do you... I, um, you know, I'm of the left and I'm progressive, but I'm, I'm kind of, I can't believe I say it sometimes, but I'm kind of on Mark Latham's side with this. Like kids be kids. And if there are issues regarding their gender, that's fine. Have their parents 
work through those issues and talk through those issues and, and, you know, basically leave it out of the classroom, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's, it's not something... I know kids spend the vast majority of their lives at school, but, but teachers are there to teach and they need to be teaching... You know, the basics, the formatics that will get our kids educated. Your maths, your English, your science, all the rest of it. Leave the other issues to be outside of classroom, I think. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Good to have you company on this Tuesday. Uh, I read with interest a story yesterday regarding our rental situation, and there is a rental crisis, and apparently it's continuing to worsen, with new data showing the country is battling all-time low vacancy rates and rental prices now at record highs, and there's no sign of relief, according to the experts. The latest data from PopTrack shows that average weekly rental prices are averaging $420 to $575 per week across the country's major capital cities, with the ACT the most expensive. I would know, I've rented before in Canberra, it's a bloody rip-off. Anyway, that's according to the latest figures, and that is a 19.7% increase over the past five years. PopTrack Director for Economic Research Cameron Kusher says the rental market is very tight and with Australia's re- Australia returning to COVID normal, the market will continue to worsen as supply remains low but demand continues to grow. He said it really is a tough market at the moment. We're seeing a lot of demand for property, especially since cities have opened. People are going back to university and overseas travel. Even markets where we weren't seeing as much growth, like Sydney and Melbourne, have started to pick up. Melbourne and Sydney have seen rent increases of between 8.4% and 9%, respectively, for units over the past year, according to CoreLogic data. The vacancy rates for units in those markets has fallen to 1.9% in Melbourne in April, from 5.7% a year ago, and 1.8% for Sydney units, and that is down from 4.2%. Houses in the Greater Brisbane area, where the vacancy rate is 0.9%, have seen the biggest rent increases in the past year, up 12.2%, and a hefty 23.6% over the past five years. That's for an average annual change over the period of 4.3% in Brisbane. Uh, Casey Kahai, who rents a house with a family south of Brisbane in a place called Homeview, is one of the many tenants facing price increases and worrying about the market. She told the Australian newspaper, we're on a yearly lease due to expire in November and we are expecting our rent to skyrocket as the properties around us have already started going up. In Adelaide, uh, the vacancy rate is as low as 0.3% for houses and units, where rents have gone up 9.5% for houses and 7.8% for units over the past 12 months. Rents for houses and units in Hobart are up 9.4% for houses and 7% for units. That's over the past year. 
and they've skyrocketed some, listen to this, 38.6% and 36.6% respectively over five years. The vacancy rate in the Tasmanian capital for houses is 0.9%. Talk about a tight market. And units is even worse, 0.8%. Good luck trying to find an affordable rental in Hobart. Sydney's housing rents have risen 9% in the past year and by 5.1% in Melbourne as vacancy rates sit at 1.4% and 1.3% respectively. What about regional areas? Well, in some, the rents have skyrocketed even more. In the greater Gold Coast area, rental prices for houses where the vacancy rate is 0.8% have jumped some 18.3% in a year. And in the past five years, the rents have gone up 40%. That's for the Gold Coast. It's a similar story for Newcastle with rents up 12.9% in a year and almost 35% in five years. Now that is 28 times more than the annual five-year increase in Newcastle of 6.2%. Dear oh dearie me, I mean what, <laughs> what, what, what can we do about this sort of stuff? Well, I think it all comes down to supply and obviously we need more affordable housing. What about those renters trying to enter the market? Well, the best tip apparently is to stay alert, sign up for wait lists, great, and submit fully completed applications. You can set up notifications on sites such as realestate.com where you can be notified of rentals when they enter the market, uh, or you can go into wait lists as well. I mean, who would ever have thought in a place like Australia that we'd have something like a, a wait list in order to pay a ridiculous amount of rent. Crazy times. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. All righty, well, that's it for our show today. Thank you for your company on this Tuesday, the 24th day of May, here on starterfm.com.au on the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in, and if you're listening to us on the podcast, Do us a solid, if you wouldn't mind, please share it on your social media for us uh, or share the link. That'd be great. Okay, if you want to comment on any uh, anything we've had to talk about today, you can give us a ahoy anytime, 24-7-0406-521-250. The Marcus Paul in the Morning hotline is open there for you. And uh, maybe you would like to perhaps comment on the Facebook content. And there's plenty of that that's up already and more will go up today as well. Prawncast podcast will drop a little later. I hope you have a, a wonderful and dryish kind of Tuesday. I, did I hear right in the news yesterday? We've had the wettest period in some parts of New South Wales in particular in decades. We've already surpassed, in Sydney anyway, the average yearly rainfall. And we're not even halfway through the year yet. Brolly's at the ready, I would imagine. Uh, And what's it doing to the construction industry? Well, it's leading to delays. That's what it is. Not many tradies are able to get out. You can't lay bricks in the rain. You you know, you can't do a lot of other things, particularly in homes that are just starting out. You certainly can't pour concrete, all that kind of stuff. Have a great day. We'll catch up again tomorrow between 7 and 9 here on Starter FM. Right around Australia, this is Marcus Paul in the morning. Hi, Marcus. Wow, wow, wow. Elbow one, Marcus. Elbow one. Can you believe the 
most unpopular guy on the popularity contest. The guy that can't get himself a hot wife. He actually won the race of all the women. Mate, you must be pretty happy, Marcus. I'll tell you what. And you deserve to be happy because Albert's being your man. Like, yeah, yeah, you picked the right side, friendly Geordie, you're like, the right direction, well done, mate, oh, come on, Elbow. So now, because you were the man responsible for Elbow being elected in this country, Marcus, because Marcus, without your support, support all the little radical leftist red shirts out there, without you, Elbow wouldn't have just got across the line, mate. But bloody hell, that elbow's in. Guess what, Marcus? That means everybody's life has to get markedly better year on year on year going forward from now. And I'm talking about in four years, you've got to look back and say, well, I'm four times better off than I was four years ago. Because remember, that's what elbows promised. I don't think Elbow will be able to live up to the standards that he set for himself. You know that, I know that, everyone knows that, but you didn't care because to you this is two sports in labour. I just wonder, Marcus, how do you feel about bloody pain for your seat the week before Elbow, your man, becomes Prime Minister? And one of his main promises, which he didn't give, but he should because he looks to care for people, is to put teeth in people's heads just like yourself, mate. Am I fired up? Yeah, I'm fired up. Why am I fired up? Because they've got a bloody C-grade average student being Prime Minister, being leader of a nation of 25 million people. The guy's not the best guy in the room for 100 guys. How the hell is he the best guy in 10 million guys? I've got no idea. You people hate him so much, so much you're quite happy to bring in elbow. Okay? This wasn't an election of who's the good guy. This was an election of who do I dis- who do I dis- like the least out of these two bozos. Who do I dis- who do I dis- little radical leftist leg shirts out there? And because of the brain dead Labour idiot, we're gonna have this guy and he's selling us out to globalists, the New World Order, the Great Reset. Where do you want to start, Marcus? Are we gonna start ticking up a few of these things, mate? I haven't even got fired up yet, buddy. I haven't even given you the entree yet. I'm just setting the table, Marcus. But there's plenty of conversations to be had here. Most importantly, when's Elbow going to give you a bloody rebate through Medicare Dental? Do you take this or dick? Hey, and did you see the same dentist that Elbow saw to get his veneers put in a while ago? Congratulations, buddy. Elbow! <laughs> All right, mate, this is Mitchell.